Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 94th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Aaron Kramer and I, Mark McEvely, will bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So welcome back to the show, Aaron. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. I think it's the second time I've done it with you. Yeah, I know. You've done it with Matt a couple of times. So Matt is out today. So Aaron is filling in for him. Um, So glad to have you back. I'm excited. So as always, we'll get started here and take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on April 21st, and this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 3.82% for the month of April and up 11.11% for the year. The Dow up 2.97% for the month and up 11.54% for the year. The NASDAQ index up 5.3% for the month and up 8.24% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down a half a percent for the month and up 13.5% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, uh, is up 1.75% for the month and up 7.5% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.03%, the two-year Treasury yielding uh, 0.15%, and the 10-year Treasury is sitting at 1.56%. Um, so some news over the last week here, uh, major ones obviously was that the indexes again reached uh, new highs last week with the Dow breaking above 34,000 and the S&P 500 posting its 22nd all-time closing high of the year last Thursday. Been a really strong start. Yeah, it has been a really good good start. Um, strong start to the first quarter, and I'm going to provide uh, some more detail on what it means when we have strong first quarters yep. here in a little bit. Um, next data was out last week, Aaron, that showed retail sales trouncing estimates, uh, shooting up 10% in March, regional manufacturing rebounded to levels that we haven't seen since the seventies. And the number of people filing for unemployment benefits fell to the lowest level since the pandemic, um, kind of started. So that's all positive news. Yeah, that's great. That's great news. Um, so and it's, and it's not really surprising, right? I no, mean, you have no. more money circulating around, so retail sales should right. do good. Stimulus you know, checks coming through. 50% of the U.S. population has at least one vaccine shot, so right. things are getting back to normal. So I think this is all expected, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of the um, the manufacturing's just been bottlenecks from things being shut down over the pandemic. So I think as demand comes back, there's going to be a lot more um, manufacturing coming soon. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, And then lastly, earnings season got off to a really good start last week with several of the major banks uh, reporting and beating uh, revenue and earnings estimates. So we'll see if that trickles through into other sectors. So over the next two weeks, you're going to start to see some of the heavy hitters uh, um, reporting earnings, uh, especially a lot of the big tech names, I think, are scheduled for next week. Yeah. Um, So just see how that plays out. Yeah, me too. Keep an eye on that. 
Um, next, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. Um, the first thing that I have is a research piece from LPL back on April 9th, and it's titled, A Goldilocks First Quarter Has Bulls Smiling. And what this chart shows, Aaron, is what happens the rest of the year if the S&P 500 index is up between 5 and 10% for the first quarter of the year. And again, I want to remind people that um, it's a fairly small sample size, only about 15 or 20 years in here. Um, and past performance is not indicative of future returns. But, you know, um, since the market's inception and specifically the S&P 500, every time um, the first quarter has been up anywhere between 5 and 10%, the average return for the rest of the year has been almost 12.5%, which is strong. pretty good. And it's there's really only good. been two negative years um, when the first quarter is up between 5 and 10%. That was in 2011 and then not seen um, all the way back to 1956. Um, so, again, I think that that's you know, another uh, notch on the bull's tool belt yeah i think it's a great data point and it's definitely um, promising for right now so um and again you know small sample set but you know there are more and more pieces of data like this aaron that i'm seeing mm -hmm. um that point to stronger returns for the rest of the year however everything anything can happen right, um, right so we have to be be prepared for for everything um, but in, in addition to that, Ryan Dietrich, uh, tweeted out a post that was similar, um, with kind of a similar chart. And he said this, when the S and P 500 doesn't close beneath the December low during Q1, the returns of the full year are extremely strong up 18.4% on average and higher 33 out of 35 times. It just happened again in 2021, which could have the bulls smiling. So again, just to reiterate for people, this data set is looking at every time the S&P 500 index never violated its December low during the first quarter. So if, for example, Aaron, if, you know, we start, uh, you know, if we have the month of December and that, you know, falls 5% mm -hmm. and then goes higher from there throughout the first quarter and never reaches that point again, that's what this data is, is um, applying it. itself to. Um, so some numbers here is that when the December low is never violated in the following first quarter, the average return for the rest of the year is 18.5%. Uh, yep, which is really, really strong. strong. And again, just reiterating, um, S&P 500 has been higher 33 out of 35 times. So again, another thing, you know, just to pay attention to, because we do see a lot of talk in the markets, um, people calling for a pullback, people right. calling for a correction, people <laughs> calling for a crash even. Right. Um, but it's just important to put these things in perspective. And again, out of these, you it's know, a there's a sample size, bigger too. sample size, there's almost, you know, 30, 35 years worth of data on this. And only two of those years have been negative. Um, actually, 2011, um, the S&P 500, 500 index full year return was 0%. 
and in 2015 it had a negative 0.7% return. So the years that it's been negative, it's not even that negative. No, it's not even that negative. So um, again, just remember these stats when you know we do get a five percent or ten percent or even fifteen percent sell-off because it's right. going to happen. Right. Um, you know, and typically we're entering a period of seasonality where markets tend to be a little weaker. So right. I think people need to be prepared for that. Yeah. Um, yeah but again, we've already hit twenty-two <laughs> all-time highs in the S and P five hundred right. index this year. So um, you know, it would not surprise me if we saw a correction maybe even double digits yeah but people just need to to stick to their game plan and not let it phase them exactly just sort of look through look past yep um last thing i have is a tweet by peter maluk i think that's how i say his name i'm sorry peter if i butchered your name (laughs) uh this was back on april 13th and he listed out the top five wealth killers Um, so I just want to go through each of these and see, you know, if you have any adjustments to these, Aaron, or if you agree or disagree with any of these. Yeah. So number one by a landslide, he says is credit card debt. And I tend to agree with him here. I think it's hard to beat something that has an average interest rate of 18, 19, 20%. Right. Right. Um, number two wealth killer is high student loans with, without a high earning degree. This is something that's not talked about a lot, Aaron, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, in addition to your savings rate, one of the biggest levers people have is earning more income. Right. Right. And I think people get too in the weeds with trying to cut out these minor things in their budget so that they have more discretionary spending. Whereas I think people need to flip that on its head and make it easier by going after jobs with higher incomes. Exactly. And then avoiding once you do get that higher paying salary or job, not increasing your standard of living too much. Right. Exactly. I, man, you and Matt are good. Putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> I know, We're going to talk about that soon, but <laughs> no, keep going. Um, no, yeah. I think it's just getting that, uh, that higher salary, avoiding the lifestyle creep, which is going to be mentioned here in a second. <laughs> yeah. And I, and, and I think that that's really important too, is that, you know, if parents are working with their kids to, to take out loans for college, you know, I think that has to be one of the factors that gets played into it is that what does that child potentially want to do after college? Right. Because if it's, for example, not a high earning job, then a lot of times, you know, saddling someone with that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I know it's tough because, you know, when you're 18 years old, you don't know what you want to do. Right. Right. Um, But, you know, it's just something to keep in mind, because if you do have student loans with without a uh, high earning degree, then, you know, that's a problem. Right. Uh, number three, Peter says, are houses, cars beyond needs and with a higher carrying cost than you can afford? So this kind of goes along with number five. So we'll just say it is personal right. lifestyle creep. Right. Um, and we've talked about this on the podcast before that it's fine to increase your standard of living if you get raises or you right. get a new job with a higher income. But at least, you know, save half of that right. raise. Yeah, I know or, we've or, talked about that on the podcast before. Is like if you get a 10% raise, save half of that raise, um, and then the other half you can spend, essentially. So, right, exactly. So that you're always getting, you know, a raise, but you're slowly and slowly increasing your contributions to your retirement account right. so that that lifestyle creep doesn't really come into play. 
Yeah, I think that's a big factor for a lot of people is not recognizing lifestyle creep. Right, exactly. And it's normal to have that, right? It's right. like I make more money, I can spend more money, right? right? But, you know, we have to keep the long-term uh, perspective in mind when we're thinking about that. Um, and number four that he said, uh, Aaron was a partner that encourages excessive spending. And I know that That's this interesting. might, <laughs> that might... It, it sounds funny, which it, it kind of is, but I mean, this, this is something that, you know, I think a lot of couples go through and deal with Absolutely. is that there's one person that manages the finances and the other person has no idea what's going on mm-hmm. until a large negative event happens and the other spouse gets involved and they're like, oh my gosh. I never knew that my spouse was spending this much money. Right, exactly. And they thought that this was going towards a retirement account, but it wasn't, right? Exactly. So I think this is one of those things, especially for new couples, I think it's really, really important to get on the same page, do a budget. You know, when you're going through, you know, the name changing process and when you're combining bank accounts, I think that this is just a perfect time to sit down and have that conversation, whether or not you combine your bank accounts or keep them separate, just get on the same page of, you know, what you're able to spend from a discretionary basis each and every month. Exactly. Because, I mean, you got to be a team and essentially work together to get to your retirement goals because, I mean you're, you're in it together. So, right. Exactly. Yeah, Cause be you're functioning, you're, you're a unit functioning as one essentially right. from a financial standpoint, if you combine your finances. So, um, you know, it, it's really, it is really important. And I know it could be awkward, um, sometimes to have that conversation, um, especially if there's prenups involved and, right. and that type of thing. But again, it's just one of those tough conversations that I think people need to have or else, you know, you can run into issues down the road if you think, you know, your money is going to A, but it's really going to exactly. B. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the interesting thing here was there was a guy that replied to yeah, Peter. Yeah, I was going to mention that. That reply is really good. Yeah, yeah. And he he said, I like it. Here are the top five wealth creators. Number one, like we talked about, Aaron, the ability to increase income. Number two, the high savings rate. Number three, equity ownership. So stock, company, real estate, et cetera. Number four is long-term fixed rate debt well covered by cash flows. So something like a mortgage. Yep. Number five, simplicity, which leads to repeatability. And I really like number five, Aaron, because I think we're in the day of age that people think that especially with regards to investments, you know, whether that's in the markets or real estate or or private companies, you know, they think everything needs to be really complex, Mm -hmm. where in reality, it really doesn't. Right. Um, You know, so I think that's one of the things to keep in mind is, is do what works for you, but just keep it simple. Don't do something that you have to check on every single day of your life. uh, That just, you know, sucks the life out of you, (laughs) essentially. Because then you're never going to really do it. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I I really like that. Um, And again, the the biggest two things that I can encourage people to do if they want more wealth is, you know, have the ability to increase your income. Um, You know, you can go back to school and get, you know, degrees to, to be able to do that. Or you can just learn on your own. I mean, it might sound stupid, Aaron, but you can literally figure out how to do anything on YouTube these days, right? So if you're in a position where you want to grow your income, but you don't feel like you can do that at your current employer, learn how to do something else. Exactly. You know, exactly. Um, So that's all I had for today and I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a few um, here. Uh, First one is a tweet from Gavin Baker. um, And he replied, um, he's a fidelity, former fidelity uh, OTC fund manager. 
Um, and he replied to this Wall Street Journal article um, that's about sort of uh, new investors discovering tax pitfalls of Robinhood and other trading apps. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to read sort of like the little a little blurb of what was going on in the article. Um, and it says, last year, uh, Dayton Leong, an active trader with accounts at nine firms, made scores of trades using the Robinhood app. He felt like he got... Um, he he liked that he got free stocks from referring more than a dozen friends and found it easy to trade on his phone. However, he stopped trading in his Robinhood account, um, which he has about 238,000 of mostly Tesla stock uh, for major tax reasons. So um, what's kind of going on is Robinhood puts all their shares sort of in one big bucket. Um, and he realized he wasn't able to sell specific tax lots or specify the lots. So Mark, do you kind of want to explain what specifying tax lots is yeah so plain and plain and simple let's say um you know a year ago you bought stock a at fifty dollars a share and let's say today you bought stock at a hundred dollars a share and if this is in a taxable account so a non-retirement account at most major uh, financial institutions if you wanted to sell that stock of company a then you could specify which lots you wanted to sell. So the benefit of doing that is to be able to control your tax liability. Because if I sell my fifty share or the my shares that I bought at fifty, and I have to sell them at hundred, that's a hundred percent gain, right? right? So you're gonna have to pay tax on that money. Whereas if you need to adjust your you know your tax liability for the year, you can say, hey, no, I don't want to sell the shares that I bought at fifty. I want to sh- sell the shares I bought at a hundred because the the cost basis is lower right, essentially, exactly. right? So if the stock is trading at one ten, you only have a ten dollar gain on each share you own rather than uh, a sixty dollar gain on on the shares you bought at fifty. Yeah, and that's a really important tool for for people that are kind of actively trading because um, they don't want to create a ton of gains and then go to sell it like this guy. Um, and he said he's actually haunted by his twenty twenty capital gains tax. Oh gosh. Um, so sort of like I guess a word of caution is that like a lot of investors uh, like Mr. Long um, for vexing or deciding which technology to use. Um, just because Robinhood's easy might not make it the best um, for for tax purposes. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just one of those things that people need to educate themselves on all of these little quirks with some of these newer companies right. that allow you to trade stocks. Yeah. They might have slick apps that are easy to use, but it's stuff you got to take in con- into consideration. Yeah. I remember, you know, I was having a conversation, you know, with a buddy or one of my brothers or something and you know they knew someone who was doing the whole day trading thing Mm -hmm. and he was like i think my brother asked him about tax consequences and he was just like oh no i don't have to pay tax on that (laughs) my brother who's in the industry was like yeah Yeah, you you do do. (laughs) like you can't just you can't just not pay tax on that so i think that's one of the things that i hope it's a learning experience for a lot of people because you know with the day trading craze just because of covid and everything Again, I think it's great that a lot more people are getting involved, but yeah. you have to know the consequences that come along with that. Exactly. Um, so it, in a, a little update to the tweet, it says that it is possible with manual intervention in a 30-day wait period um, to get oh, gosh. S- specific tax, tax lots, lots on Robinhood. So that's kind of a hassle. And 
I don't know, kind of crazy in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, it is. And again, this is just relating to taxable accounts. So if you have like an individual account or a joint account mm-hmm. with a spouse, you know, this comes into play, but this does not come into play for retirement accounts like IRAs. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Next uh, tweet I had tum- comes from uh, Daniel Lakel on April 18th. And Daniel has a PhD in economics. So um, this is a update to U.S. inflation numbers, um, and just wanted to highlight a few here. Um, so this chart is going to show the consumer price index for urban consumers uh, based on a city average. So um, the average, or all of them, came in at 2.6% increase um, from, from last March. Um, so a couple I wanted to highlight here that are, came in a little bit higher than that total average is um, food at home. So food it came in at 3.5% increase uh, compared to the 2.6 average. Um, kind of interesting. I think uh, a lot of people have been cooking at home mm-hmm. compared to uh, restaurants. So it's, it's interesting. Um, next one here is energy commodities. So that was up 13.2%. So that's a pretty big spike. Right. And that makes sense too, right? Because number one, you have more money flowing around. And number two, you have more people starting to travel, right? So that's almost expected at this right. point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, electricity was up 4.1. Um, and the one that was really surprising, kind of interesting, maybe you can throw something in there about it, is um, used cars and trucks were up 9.4 from last year. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's just funny to see what a difference a year makes because, you know, back in April of 2020, you know, these dealerships couldn't move cars off the lot, right? But what happens when, you know, you start to open back up again, you start to throw money at people is they're going to buy stuff (laughs) that they want, right? Exactly. And the other thing, in addition to this too, Aaron, is that, you know, back in a couple months ago, we saw the the personal savings rate spike to like 20% from mm-hmm. like 6% or something like that. And now these people feel comfortable again, you know, they have steady incomes again. So they're feeling comfortable to spend this money. Exactly. Right? Um, and just with, you know, how expensive new cars are, you know, these days, this doesn't shock me to see that, you know, used, used cars, cars and are, trucks are yeah. in high, high demand right now. Exactly. Um, so again, couple that with low interest rates for people to get a cheap get loan loans. because you can get, you can get a loan to buy a used car too. Exactly. You know, this is, this is not shocking to me at all. Yeah. Um, last one I wanted to mention was medical care services was at 2.7. So it was actually pretty much in line with, uh, normal inflation there. So okay. kind of interesting. Very interesting because that's usually one of the ones that's that usually, we see yeah. it's significant trend significantly higher. higher. Usually around five or six percent. Right. So yeah, that's yeah, it's usually that and like college costs mm-hmm. uh those are, tend those to, are the... to outpace inflation, right? Right. Um so I mean this is I mean, I hope it's not this isn't just a, a, a short term thing because, you know, as you and I both know, you know, the cost of medical care yeah, these days is I insane. Agree. It so. needs to needs to level out at right. some point. Right. Um, all right, moving on. Um, this last one is another tweet from zero hedge. Um, and it says banks do not need any more deposits. And it shows this chart here of the big four banks and it, uh, overlays, um, total loans and average deposits from the last sort of 20 years here. So it's kind of interesting. You can see this huge, huge spike in deposits right around when COVID started. 
So um, I think that comes from a lot of people saving money, not going out and spending it, and then all the stimulus that's come out. So um, what's kind of interesting is that overall loans uh, over the last year or so are actually down, um, and deposits are up very significantly, as I said. So um, I think this data just kind of confirms our thesis that there's a significant amount of cash on the sidelines. Um, and what we've kind of noticed locally is that um, in a lot of nonprofits, they're just keeping tons and tons of cash to be conservative because um, they were kind of nervous over the pandemic. So I think it's a, a good sign potentially for the markets that some of this money might come back in. Um, and I also think it's kind of interesting to where I think banks might actually charge to have deposits on account. Um, yeah, because they want to encourage people to, to take loans right, out, right? right. Because so that's gonna, where they make the most of their spread. Exactly. So I think I, I would not surprise me if I saw saw banks starting to to charge on large deposits. Yeah, that's um, going to be that's going to be interesting to see thing to see play out. And I do think that there is a significant a lot amount of money still left on the sidelines. And I, you know, where else are they going to put this money? You know, exactly. It's just like. If people want a decent return, they have very limited options at this point, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the big four, if you look at this chart versus M2 Money Supply, um, which is a, uh, a tracker of checking savings, money markets, and CDs, they, it looks pretty much dead on, which makes sense, given that these are big four banks. So I just thought it was interesting on how, how exact the charts look. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting one. I guess we'll see how that plays out. But you know, people people are uh, hesitant to, to take out loans right now because I think, you know, what, what are the main reasons that people take out loans, like buy a new house exactly. or, or buy an existing house? And with, you know, how tight the supply chain is right now, prices are it's so, insane. so high. So people are like, oh, I'm going to wait for it to cool off. People actually might put themselves in a pinch because it might not cool off for another couple of years. Yeah, yeah, not making a, a guess on it, but I think that this thing has a lot, you know, a lot more legs potentially to run a little hot for a little while. Yeah, I agree. Um, totally agree. You know, you have more money chasing fewer goods, and that's going to raise prices. Exactly. Um, so I, I think you know, I think we can continue to see deposits increase and increase. But at what point do banks say? All right, we're going to start yeah. charging people more for deposits right, because they we can, need to make more money. Exactly. They can only make so much on those like services that they offer and um, credit card points and things like that. Right. So, Their main money maker is loan and money. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything else you want to add on that one, Mark? Nope, I don't think so. Um, so we'll move on to the financial planning topic of the week. And this is um, the last one in our series of investing by age, Aaron. Yeah. So um, it's been a good series. Again, just as a reminder, Peter Lazaroff uh, wrote several blog posts um, talking about, you know, what you should be thinking about based upon what age you're at right and we did it exactly. by, by 10 years starting um i think we started in 20s went to 30s 40s and now no, a decade 50s. away from yep. retirement um so again this is for people that are in their 50s to 60s mm -hmm. or about a, a decade away from retirement what you should be thinking about and peter uh, just as a teaser is going to be on the podcast next week with us so we're going to talk through some of these things with him and kind of get his his thoughts and, and share some other things that he's thinking about awesome. right now um, so he says number one is assess your situation calculate your net worth by subtracting what you owe for example debt mortgage and credit card balances from what you own cash retirement accounts and assets 
You want to have a clear picture of your financial status before you chart your retirement journey. And this is something easy to do, Aaron. You could exactly. use like a mint.com or a personal capital to, you know, kind of get a net worth or you can just, you know, download. A, yeah, yeah, you can do a download a net worth statement um, or a personal financial sheet from, you know, Google into an Excel document exactly. if you want to do that, too. But it's just a good idea to see where you just are. Know, yeah, exactly. Know where you're at. Know what's going on. Um, number two is project your future expenses. According to Investopedia, a major, uh, excuse me, a majority uh, amount of people believe that their annual spending during retirement will be 70 to 80% of their past expenditures. However, you must also factor in expected and unexpected expenses that may occur. You might decide you want to travel, buy a new car, but you need to make a list of all of your planned costs so you can build those expenditures into your budget. So for an example, Aaron, you know, if someone makes $100,000 pre-tax in this situation, you're going to want to have $70,000 in pre-tax income in exactly. retirement, right? So you have to take your estimated Social Security benefits uh, plus any pensions uh, that you might have and add that up and see how much you'll have to tap your 401k or IRA to make up the difference. Exactly. Right? And if you need to take more than 5% per year from your retirement accounts to get to the income level that you want, then you need to be saving more now. Exactly. Um, number three is running a tax projection. So tax projections help inform how to allocate your existing cash flow so you can minimize taxes today and during retirement, whether it's bunching charitable contributions using a donor advised fund or making partial Roth conversions, the years leading up to retirement are optimal for maximizing your tax planning. Um, and for those people that don't know what a donor advised fund is, that you can open up this fund, Aaron, and contribute money to it every year and get the, the tax write-off the year in which you contribute the money. Exactly. And you don't necessarily have to donate that money in that year that you right. make the contribution. Yeah, you can decide five, you can years, decide five years down the road. You can keep that money growing, and then you know five years pass, and you're like, okay, I want to send a check here, a check there, but I'm going to keep money in there for it to keep growing and keep continually making those contributions to get those tax benefits too. Yeah, it's a, it's a great option for people trying to reduce their, their tax liability. Yeah, and I, I'd rather see people use something like that if they can rather than just giving like cash, right? Exactly. Um, and number four that touched a little bit on and number three is consider partial Roth conversions. So um, the decade before retirement is crucial because it's the best time to manage current and future taxes. And a large portion of your nest egg, if a large portion of your nest egg resides in IRA accounts, you'll have a significant required minimum distribution subject to income taxes that eat away at your hard-earned savings. With partial Roth conversions, however, you can take money out of your IRA, pack, pay taxes on it right away, and have tax-free income in retirement. You can even convert smaller amounts over time instead of paying taxes all at once. Do you want to add anything yeah, here uh, to the Roth, Roth conversions, conversions? Are great. Um, kind of how one thing I'd like to add is that maybe if you're in a really high tax bracket in, in sort of maybe your late fifties, it might make sense to to wait a little bit and convert maybe in the first few years of retirement when your uh, when your taxable income is likely going to fall a little bit. So um, if that's not the case, though, it's great to look at sort of where your tax bracket is now. Say you're in the 22nd tax bracket and you have um, $20,000 of more income you could earn 
up to the 24% tax bracket, I always kind of recommend converting that difference. So you're not throwing yourself into the tax bracket above you, but still taking advantage of the, the Roth conversion. I think it's a really great strategy. Yeah, I think it is too, because I think it's really important for people to have, you know, different buckets of, you know, um, money that have different tax consequences in retirement, right? Because right? you can really manipulate your, your taxable income to, you can get depending have where you pull those sources. Yeah, right, exactly. So, you know, for example, if you're married and you file joint um, and you don't itemize and you get the standard deduction, which is almost $25,000 right. this year. So essentially, if you're in retirement, you can take twenty five grand from your IRAs or 401ks and have zero tax consequences. Exactly. And then next, you can go to your Roth bucket because all that money is going to be tax free. Then you can move to a checking or savings account, which that money has been taxed. So you'll owe no taxes there. Um, And then Social Security. So there's limits on how much income you can have to when your Social Security becomes taxable. But, you know, having these different tax buckets is is really beneficial in retirement because, you know, um, you know, an accountant or a tax professional can manipulate your tax liability to be significantly lower. Exactly. Um, Number six is reducing your debt. Uh, Start with the highest interest debt first, like credit card balances, personal loans, or mortgages, but don't use a lump sum withdrawal from your retirement account to pay it off. The taxes you'll pay will likely be higher than any interest savings. So this is a common mistake that we see, Aaron, is we see it a lot. When people retire, they want to take a large chunk out of their 401k and pay off all their debt. Well, we're in this low interest rate environment where it really just doesn't make it sense doesn't. to do so. If interest rates were at like 10%, then okay, I could right. understand that. But your tax bill is going to be a lot higher than what your interest payments exactly. would be if you just kept paying on it until the debt was paid And off. you're going to lose out on the continued growth of that money that you took out as well, which likely you'll probably get higher than a two and a half, three percent mortgage rate as well. So yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things, you know, if you if you do want to do that, you have to plan for that. So if you have a million dollars in your 401k, but you're going to take out a hundred grand right when you retire to pay off debt, you need to account for that when you're doing your calculation of spending five percent of your right. overall account balance each and every year. Exactly. The amount that you can spend each year from a withdrawal rate is is decrease significantly yeah so so don't recommend doing that um unless obviously you have you know some sort of debt that has a crazy high interest rate right um number seven is sharpening your retirement budget a spending plan allows you to set aside funds for luxuries such as travel or shopping envision your dream retirement as well as what it would cost then you can set aside the amount you'll need to fund your dream without a spending plan or any retirement plan. You are far more likely to run out of money as the years pass. So again, people, I don't think need to get too in the weeds with this, but just having an idea of what of, you're able to, of spend. What you're able to right. spend, right? So you can't, you know, you can't be taking, you know, 20% of your 401k and spending that in one year. That's right. just, you know, that's a recipe for disaster, right? Um, and number eight is understanding your healthcare options. According to Fidelity Investments, the average 65-year-old couple will spend about $11,000 on healthcare in the first year of retirement. Medicare kicks in at age 65, but it often doesn't cover everything. Um, and the other thing is here, Aaron, is that if you retire before age 65, you need to build health care into your retirement budget. Exactly. Um, because nowadays, people could be spending 
upwards of close to a thousand dollars a month for, exactly. for a, a health insurance policy. Right. Um, so again, uh, I would check with your employer, you know, see if there's any early retiree medical mm-hmm. program. I know some companies offer that. Right. Um, but that's going to be the big kicker. It's fine if you want to retire before 65, but just, you know, plan Prepare for having for very increased medical premiums, right? You know, than what you're used to with your employer plan, right? Because essentially, you're paying the full portion where most employer healthcare plans they're paying a majority of it or half of it, right? So, so um, and number ten is uh, get professional advice, and you know, I'm not just highlighting this, Aaron, because you know we're advisors ourselves, but you know, people's lives are busy and sometimes people don't have time to do the research on what they need to do to prepare for retirement. And I get that it's life. Um, but it's like any other profession, you or I wouldn't, you know, represent ourselves in court if we needed to, because, you know, we wouldn't know how to do that. Exactly. (laughs) Right. So I would hire a professional, you know, a professional attorney because they have significant experience and, you know, this is no different. Exactly. Even if it's just a one-time consultation where you meet with an advisor for an hour or two just to outline what they need to do and then right. you go do it, that's or fine. sit down and do a one-time financial plan to see where you're at. It's exactly. Like you I have think, to commit to investing with them or something like that. Yeah. And I think people get the misconception is that it has to be this you know, long lasting relationship with an advisor. And for a lot of people that makes sense and Mm -hmm. they want that. But for people that don't and are very cost conscious, sit down for an hour or two, or like you said, do a financial plan just so you're, you know, pointed in the right direction and you're just double checking yourself to make sure you have everything covered. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so we will leave it there this week, Aaron. Um, thanks for filling in for Matthew today. I appreciate it. it. And uh, next week, we'll be back for the 95th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Um, Again, we're going to be having Peter Lazarus on from PlanCorp to talk about uh, some of these articles that we've discussed over the past couple weeks and uh, see what hot button planning items he wants to let listeners know about. be a good one. Yeah. So have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's double www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.
achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.